That's good. Okay, you got your Bibles. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. And um, let's pray one more time as we get into the Word of God this morning. Lord, we just thank you for your Word today. God, we just come with come to you praying that you would open our ears to hear, that you would open our eyes to see. Father, we present to you our hearts. We pray that our hearts would be soft soil for the seed of your word. And so, Lord, you know the condition of every one of our hearts. And right now, we just pray that by your spirit, you do a work in us, Lord, so that we could receive your word. Because we come to your word, Lord, recognizing that we're not the authority over it. It's the authority over us, and it's leading us to you. It's pointing us to Jesus. And so, Lord, thank you for the written word that leads us to Christ, the living word. And we pray, God, that you'd speak to our hearts and minds this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Luke chapter 19. This is cool. We come to a story in our Bibles that is unique to Luke's gospel. It's not recounted in in Matthew, Mark, or John. And I'm really glad that the Lord saw fit to uh, give it to us. And uh, it's the story of Zacchaeus. Now, just with regards to the time frame of where we are in the Gospels so that we get our bearing on Luke's account of Jesus' life, uh, the time frame of Jesus' ministry is this, that we are quickly, very rapidly approaching his final week. Like we're like in the last 10 to 8 days of Jesus' life before he went to Jerusalem and was crucified. And... Um, Jesus, as we've seen, was clearly communicating to his disciples what would happen to him when he reached Jerusalem. He told them that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles, that he would be mocked, that he would be shamefully treated, that he would be spit upon, that he would be uh, flogged, that they would kill him, and after three days, he would rise. He had clearly shared these things to the twelve, but they had not understood it. The scripture tells us that it was hidden from them. Uh, They were not able to grasp what he was saying at this point in time. And so on the journey, on the way to Jerusalem, they have come here in the story to the city of Jericho, where Jesus had already healed a blind man as they were entering into the city. Jericho, just to geographically get your bearing in the land of Israel a little bit, is 25 kilometers east of Jerusalem. So not much different between the drive between Seashelt and Gibsons. Uh, Jericho, of course, is down by the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on earth. And um, Jerusalem is up in the mountains. So the journey from Jericho to Jerusalem, that 25 kilometers, you ascend 4,000 feet. It's a, it's a steep climb up out of the Uh, Jordan Valley. And so Jesus had traveled from the Galilee all the way down the Jordan Valley. And he's about to make that right turn east uh, towards, or sorry, west, coming from the east to Jerusalem where he would be crucified in a week. And I want you to look at verse 28 for a second before we jump into the story here of uh, chapter 19, verse 28, because it tells us what happened as Jesus was making his final journey, taking that final stretch on the way to Jerusalem. It says this, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And I read that and we're going to get into this part of the story next week. It's just amazing to me that on the road to Jerusalem, on the path to the cross, Jesus was leading the procession, church. 
He wasn't uh, following a group. He was getting out in front of his disciples, leading the procession as he journeyed to the place where he would be crucified. It wasn't a reluctant trip to Jerusalem, okay? He didn't need to be coaxed along by his disciples. There was no unwilling delay on the part of Jesus. Jesus led the procession on the way to the cross because he wanted to redeem you from sin and sin's power. He wanted to reconcile the world to God through the shedding of his blood. And so Jesus had a mission to complete before he would leave Jericho. There was a man, we're going to find out, that was in need of a personal encounter with Christ. And Christ Jesus would call him. Jesus would say to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. i got to stay at your house today. And I was thinking about that, you know, just wondering in Zacchaeus, trying to get in his shoes a little bit, what that was like that seven days later, you know, he would hear the word that Jesus had been crucified in Jerusalem. Amazing, the timing of the Lord in his life. Zacchaeus must have been in awe. You know, when you think about him, he must have been in awe for the rest of his life when he remembered that encounter with Jesus and then recalled just what happened within a week of that day. Jesus makes a pit stop, comes to his house, and then Jesus makes his way to the cross. And so I imagine Zacchaeus eternally grateful that when he was called, he had come. No regrets. He came when Christ called. Now let's check this out. Verse 1 says this about Jesus. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So Zacchaeus, we find out, he's, he's a tax collector. We know this amongst the Jewish people. These were not well-liked brothers, Jewish brothers. And Jericho sat along a very important road on the way to Jerusalem. It was a highway city. Lots of goods flowing through Jericho. Lots of business happening in Jericho on its way to and from Jerusalem. So to be a, to be a tax collector, and actually the chief of tax collectors in a city like Jericho was a role in which you could make a fortune. And we find this out. He's very rich. You know, like I said, it's a, it's a highway town. So I'm, I'm just imagining, you know, whether someone's traveling on foot, they're, they're riding a mule, they're coming through town with a caravan of camels, importing goods to Jerusalem, goods and wares from the east. Jewish worshipers may be going up to the temple, needing a place to spend the night. Zacchaeus was finding a way to tax them, okay? He was getting into their pocketbooks and he was, there was a tax for whatever it was. He found a way to tax everything and he had made a fortune. Uh, men, in fact, would uh, submit bids to the Roman government to become tax collectors. They would say, you know, I found another loophole. I found another way in which we could tax people and we could bring more revenue into the empire. And Zacchaeus was one of these men who, who thought he could squeeze the most out of every citizen. It was a racket. And so it's actually ironic that Zacchaeus' name is, well, his name means pure. <laughs> his name means innocent, which he was not until he encountered Jesus. Verse 3 says this, He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Isn't this a great story? Zacchaeus is a man we find out he's a little vertically challenged. Uh, lots of money, but he still needs a stool to get stuff off the top shelf, you know. 
And, and maybe, I don't know, I actually think this, I thought, man, maybe this guy's a little bit driven by a small man syndrome. I don't know, but whatever it is, he's seeking to see who Jesus is. And, you know, to, to poke a little fun at, at his height uh, is, is fun. But the Bible also tells us about Jesus. I want to say this about Jesus. You know, he poke fun at Zacchaeus. The Bible tells us about Jesus that Jesus had no striking features about him. That there was nothing in his physical appearance that would actually make you go, yeah, that's the king of the Jews. And here's Zacchaeus. He, he wanted to see Jesus, but he couldn't see through the crowd. And the crowd wasn't going to give an inch to the man that had been overseeing them being taxed to death. So Zacchaeus runs ahead of the crowd, finds a sycamore tree that, I don't know, is overhanging the road or something like that. A little bit humiliating. But he climbs up, humbles himself, humbling thing for a government official, wants to see Jesus. He gets up into this tree, does what he has to do. And I just love this, this determination to see Jesus. This heart of determination to find out what Jesus is really like. That's a very commendable thing in a human being to say, I am hungry to know who Christ is. I, I am to determined to meet Jesus and to find out what he's, what he's like. And Zacchaeus was not going to let anyone get in the way of him discovering who Christ was, even if he had to humble himself, a government official climbing up into a tree to see what was going on. You know, there's so many people that let things get in the way of them discovering who Jesus is and what he's like. They let people get in the way. You know, they get interested, they get some determination and and getting to know Jesus, and then they allow someone or something to get between them and Jesus. Sometimes they look at the church, say, oh, that church, you know, the problem with the church is full of people. It's full of Christians. You know, I'd like to know who Jesus is, but, but then they look at the church and they say, look at those Christians. I don't want anything to do with that. Or, they, or maybe they get interested in Jesus and then some man or some woman comes into their life, some boyfriend or some girlfriend gets between them and, and Christ and they lose their determination to see Jesus. And you know, one of the things I love about Zacchaeus, one of the things that we draw from this story is this, don't let people get between you and Christ. Don't let people get between you and Christ. Zacchaeus was determined to see Jesus and he was willing to humble himself he was willing to look a little foolish in the sight of others to see Jesus, but he climbed that tree and we find out it's only to be surprised by joy. Check it out, verse five. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Yeah, I bet joyfully. You know, there he is. Zacchaeus up in the tree, hanging over the roadway, whatever it is. And Jesus had to look up. That was a nice thing for Zacchaeus. He wasn't used to people having to look up to him. He was so short, not used to people looking up. And, you know, um, you know, sometimes we can feel like this a little bit. You know, it's like, Lord, my life is of little consequence. Do you see me? Do you know what's going on with me, Lord? I feel a little lost in the crowd, like my life is hidden in a tree. But I want to tell you this this morning, just encourage you and remind you that Jesus sees you, that Jesus looks upon you, that Jesus takes notice of your life. And it certainly must have surprised him that Jesus wanted to talk to him. Isn't that a great thing when you find out that Jesus wants to talk to you personally? And Jesus seemed to know him, called Zacchaeus by name. 
They had never been formally introduced, but Jesus knew him. It wasn't like, hey, you in the tree. None of this, hey, buddy, get down from the tree. Jesus knew his name, and it's surprising when you get to know Jesus and you discover that he knows you better than anyone. He knows you on the inside, and he desires a relationship with you. No one in Jericho would have anything to do with this tax man. Zacchaeus was a man who was to be avoided at all costs. His only friends were other sellouts to the Romans and those who would hang around him for the sake of all his wealth and riches. I don't think he was a man with true friends. And Jesus wanted to come to his house. Love this about Jesus. In the scripture, I mean, here's Jesus. He's that friend who invites himself over to your house. Hey, I'm coming to your house today. But one of the things we see in Scripture about Jesus is this, that Jesus never turned down an invitation to anyone's house. Didn't matter how far he thought they were for the kingdom or what was going on in their life, he never turned down an invitation to come to someone's house. He won't turn down an invitation from you either. And Jesus was befriending this man. I love it. It didn't come with conditions, you know. Why don't I come to your house, but first, Zacchaeus, I want you to do this, I want you to do this, and I want you to put this in order. There was no manipulation in this new friendship. Just straight up, clear communication of intentions. I must stay at your house, Zacchaeus. And maybe most surprising of all, Jesus preferred to be with him over the rest of this crowd. Isn't that amazing? Jesus actually lost relationship with the crowd so that he could have relationship with Zacchaeus. And so all of these factors and and, and such a surprising outcome from just running ahead of the crowd, being determined to, to see Jesus, scrambling up that tree. And we'll read the rest of the story in, in a moment. But, you know, what we're not told in this story is this, that Zacchaeus made a decision for Christ. I would say this, he just came when he was called. I I actually think before his feet hit the ground, the man was saved. And Jesus did tell him, hurry, Zacchaeus. You know, I want to tell you, when Christ calls you, you got to be quick about it. Be quick when he calls you. It's not like my kids, you know, they get called for dinner. It's like, you know... Lisa and I, we were like, okay, well, let's just go ahead. We'll have dinner. <laughs> Wait, five. parents know this stuff, right? Especially of teenagers. It's like, they don't sense the urgency of being called. They're busy playing a game on a phone. You know, it's like, now seems like a great time for a bathroom break, doesn't it? Been called for dinner. Yes, teenage parents know how the reality is. Nothing like leaving your mom when she's called you for dinner. Look at when Christ calls, when Christ calls, Be quick about it. Hurry. Seize the opportunity. Jesus was passing through Jericho. You know, Jesus could have just as easily passed by. And so there's some great simple points we can draw from this account. I would say, determine, be determined to see Jesus. Don't let people or obstacles get in the way between you and Christ. Don't let your shortcomings, so to speak, get in the way. When Jesus calls, put the phone down. You know, if you have hair, checking it in the mirror can wait. Uh, When Jesus passes by, seize the opportunity, church. When he calls your name, hurry and respond. No questions, no delays. Don't miss the opportunity because you don't know if it'll come again. 
You know, I actually think this is about Zacchaeus. What if he had said, next time, Jesus. Next time, Jesus. Next time you come through Jericho, why don't you look me up? Next time you're in, in Jericho, drop me a line. Send me a DM, Jesus. We'll set something up. We'll have a coffee. But there would not be a next time. That's what I want you to know. There was no more next time. There would be no next time. Jesus was going to the cross. And you never know when the opportunity is the last opportunity. When Christ calls your name, hurry. Seize the opportunity. Don't, don't wait. You know, I love the things that Jesus says in his invitations to people. You know, come follow me. All you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Peter and Andrew, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. They dropped everything and they followed him. Lazarus, come forth. He came out of that grave. Zacchaeus, come down. And the scripture is teaching us, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to Christ when Christ calls. And Jesus went down to Jericho right, right at the Dead Sea to the lowest place on earth, the man was so lost, even Zacchaeus wasn't tall enough to see him in the lowest place on the earth. He can't be any lower. He can't be any lower than Zacchaeus. But I'll tell you, there's no one too far gone for Jesus. There's no one so far gone that Christ can't reach their life. Zacchaeus, come, hurry. Man, and before the man's feet hit the ground, he was born again. You know no one can ever see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Jesus said that, that. That just as a man is born of the flesh, so you have to be born of the Spirit. You have to be born of the Spirit. Come to Christ is the invitation of the Word of God and be made a new creation. That's my question for you this morning. Have you been born of the Spirit? Have you been made a new creation? Well, that was the invitation of Christ to Zacchaeus. The crowd didn't like it. The crowd didn't like it, but Jesus chose Zacchaeus over the crowd. He saw the one among the many. Let's check this out, verse 7. And when they saw it, they grumbled. They all grumbled. He has gone into, in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Was he a sinner? Yeah, you bet he was a sinner. But so were they. They just didn't know it so well. Zacchaeus knew he was a sinner. And, and when he responded to the call of Christ, it's amazing. There was immediate fruit of salvation in his life. You know, if you are saved, there's going to be evidence. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus, there will be fruit. A relationship with Jesus will not leave you unchanged. You'll be born again, this word of God says. You'll be regenerated. Born of the Spirit, not a, not a renovation of the old self, but a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old will be passed and the new will come. Look at Zacchaeus, verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I mean, this is great. This greedy, money-grabbing tax collector always looking for an angle to pat his pockets and rip somebody off. 
was transformed into a giver. Amazing. He met Christ. His heart was transformed and he immediately began to share with others. He realized, my wealth is not my own. That which I have is not to be hoarded to myself. What I have belongs to Christ. And he began to think not of his wealth, but he began to think of others and how he could support them. He had a desire to be right with others. That's what I notice about him. You know that now that he was right with God, by faith in Christ Jesus, he wanted restoration with people. He wanted right relationship with other human beings. He wasn't content to be right with God and be surrounded by broken relationships with other people. So immediately, he went to, hurt, he went to work to heal the relationships that he had damaged, to restore those he had ripped off. That's what happens when you respond to the call of Christ church. Money clenching fists loosen up to the needs of others. As far as you're able, you begin to work to be at peace with all men. When you're right with God, you will desire to be right with other people. You'll desire to be right with your brother. You'll desire to be right with your neighbors. You'll desire to be right with your children, with your siblings, with your parents. Jesus could say of Zacchaeus, today salvation has come into this man's life. Salvation has come to this house. And, and for those who grumbled, Jesus said to them, look again at chapter 19, verse 10. Uh, this, is, this should be underlined in your Bible right here. It says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Man, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I read that and I think, is there anything more wonderful than that? Is there anything more lovely than that? Is there anything more comforting than that? That Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He is searching to save those who are lost. That's how the Bible describes those who are unsaved. They're lost. They're lost. They can't find their way. They don't know where to turn in this life. They're not sure which direction to go. You know, if you're wondering which direction to go, I tell you, Christ has a direction for you. He has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus came seeking for such people. Jesus is on the lookout. That's what I would tell you. He's on the search and rescue crew. He's searching. He spotted a man at a tree. He said, that guy is lost, man. Look at that dude up there. He is lost. I've come to seek and save the lost. He's the kind of man I'm looking for. Zacchaeus, hurry, come down here. I'm coming to your house. Church, when you're called, hurry. Like a person lost in the forest, you know. The searchers come calling. That person hears their name. I think, what if the lost person doesn't respond to those searching them out? The searchers would go on searching, but they may never pass by ever again. When your name is called, you got to respond. Now, verse 11, it says this. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. There's so much expectation at this point in Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry we're three years in here. It's like, it's like hard for us to grasp this so far removed from what was going on 
in that nation at that time and with the ministry of Jesus. We're going to talk about this a bit more next week when we talk about the triumphal entry. But with, with Jesus around, the, the immediacy and the sense of the presence of the kingdom of God and the hope that it was coming was tangible. It was palpable in the nation. So Jesus tells them this parable. And this parable was actually based on some historical facts that the people of Israel were very familiar with. It had to do actually with the, uh, it had to do with Herod the Great and the transfer of his kingdom uh, to his son, Archelaus. Herod the Great was a brilliant architect uh, and a horrible man all at the same time. History tells us that. You remember when the wise men came to him and they were seeking to find him who was born king of the Jews following a star? And Herod directed them, and, and then when he said, when you find him, come back and give me a report. And when the wise men were warned by the Lord and slipped away uh, from Herod's grasp, Herod gave the order to slaughter the innocent in Bethlehem, all the baby boys under the age of two. By the way, I saw a headline on CTV this week, uh, the call to expand the reach of MAID, Medical Assisted Dying to be expanded to infants with terminal disease in our nation. And it's like, you guys, where is this going to end? Where is this going to end? Canada already has the most progressive assisted suicide policies in the world. There is nothing progressive about it. It is wickedness before God. It is sin. It is evil. And now... Pure evil has set infants in the crosshairs in our nation. It's godless. It's wickedness before God. When nations head down these paths, there's no extent. There is no, there is no extent to which these sorts of laws and these kinds of practices will stop. Where's the line? Where's the line? There's no line because there's no fear of God. Got to be a people who fear God. The inconvenient and the unwanted terminated. May the author of life have mercy on our nation. Herod ordered the killing of infants. And at, the, at his death, he wanted to transfer his kingdom to his son. And Herod ruled over Israel, the province of Palestine. He was under the auspice of Rome, but he ruled over Israel. And so when he died, his son, Archelaus, went to Rome, and he went to Rome to seek Caesar's approval so that he would get the approval of Rome for the transfer of the kingdom uh, into his hands. And so we can imagine, it's not, like, it's not like he hopped on a plane here and burned his carbon credits and got back to Jerusalem, okay, in short order. This was a round trip that was going to take many months. And so Archelaus entrusted the vastness of his father's kingdom, Herod's, Herod the Great's kingdom, and all the things that he had built, its palaces, its resources. He entrusted it into the hands of those who served him until he returned. Now, the Jewish people, they, didn't, they did not want this man to be their king. They, they didn't want his father, and they certainly did not want the son. So they actually put together a delegation of Jewish leaders, 50 leaders who traveled behind, behind Archelaus, and they also went to Rome to appeal to Caesar that this man not be made their king. And so here's what happened. The Roman province of Palestine was split in four. There was four rulers called tetrarchs. 
Archelaus was given half of the kingdom. He got two quarters to rule. And when he returned, you can imagine uh, how he brought down his vengeance on those who had opposed him. They received the harshest reaction. Then among his servants to whom he entrusted the kingdom, there were those who had faithfully served him, and there were those who said, you know, the cat's away, the mice will play. And so when the cat came back, well, you get the picture. Everyone in Jesus' day knew the history of Israel and knew the history of this transfer of power from Herod the Great to his son Archelaus. So Jesus told them this parable. Let's listen to this. Uh, to those who were supposing that the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately. Verse 12, he said to them, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. Or as some Bible translations say, Occupy until I come. That's a good translation. Occupy until I come. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten, ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, verse 26, I tell you that, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So Jesus tells this parable. And to me, there's a, as we read it, there's three types of people left to deal with this son who's gone off to inherit his kingdom, this man who's gone off to inherit his kingdom. The first is these people who use the gifts. They use the opportunities afforded to them uh, to, to faithfully and loyally serve so that when the master comes and he, he accounts for that which has been left entrusted to them, uh, they will be found faithful. And what's amazing is Jesus says this, they'll be given a position of more honor. Yeah, just in case you were wondering about the kingdom of God, listen to this. The reward for hard work is more work. The reward for doing well with responsibility is more responsibility. You know, church, there's a judgment that's coming. There's a judgment that's coming. It's coming for Christians 
uh, a judgment where the, the work we have done for the kingdom of God will be judged. It's not a judgment of salvation because that matter is settled by the cross. That matter, that matter is settled by the blood of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of Jesus who was, who was judged for our sins. But we are going to be judged for our works, for the kingdom. And those in the parable here were entrusted with one mina, one coin. I think, wow, that's actually not very much. They were entrusted with, with a little, but, but faithfully handling what they were entrusted with would result in more responsibility. It's a, there's a famous story about a pastor that once came to Charles Spurgeon. You know, Spurgeon in the 1800s in London, he was called the Prince of Preachers. He had a massive church of thousands and thousands of people and great influence, had a, a college for uh, raising up ministers. And one day he had a pastor came to him who was serving in a, in a small town somewhere in a small church. And the, the man felt that his skills far exceeded the place where he was serving, you know. And so he said to Spurgeon, you know, I just should be in a big city. I should be placed in some spot here or there where I would have more influence for the kingdom. And Spurgeon asked him, well, how many people are in your church? And he said, oh, there's about 120. And Spurgeon said to him, I think before God, 120 souls is enough to answer for, don't you? And he just put that man in his place. There is a judgment for our works, and we have to look after the things that have been entrusted to us. The second type of person in this parable was the one who was unfaithful in handling what they were entrusted. They were handicapped by fear. Handicapped by fear rather than lovingly serving the master to the best of their ability. You know, I would just say this. Doing something for the kingdom is better than doing nothing. We understand that. Don't have a skewed view of God. Just serve him with faith and obedience. Don't be trembling. Just, just get to work for the kingdom in faith. Serve him. Serve him because you love him. And then there's this third type of person in the parable. And that's those who participated in the delegation that said, we don't want this man to rule over us. We don't want this man to be king. It's amazing that there was a crowd that proclaimed this one week later before Pontius Pilate in the city of Jerusalem. We have no king but Caesar. We don't want this man to rule over us. We don't want Jesus to be king over us. Look at church. The kingdom has come and the king is coming back. And one day he is going to reign on this earth. One day all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Lord. And he's a good king. And one day he will come back and there will be no doubt that when he comes back, those who didn't want him, he will judge. They will die is what we find out from this parable. That doesn't mean that they're going to cease to exist. It means they will not be participating in his kingdom. They will not live in the new heaven and the new earth. They will not live in the kingdom of God. And it all means this. If you don't want Jesus to reign in your life now, there'll be no place in his kingdom then. If not now, then why then? And it means this, church, that today is always important in your relationship with Jesus. That's why the scriptures instruct us today. 
today. Choose this day whom you will serve. Jesus wants to reign in your life now. And so when he calls, when he comes, when he's passing by, don't delay. There may not be another opportunity. The Son of Man came came to seek and to save the lost. When he calls, when he calls, when he calls, come. Hurry and come.